Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Believe in K-Pop. We have two very exciting guests today. I've actually been very much anticipating this one because... um, I found you all happenstance like about a month ago, but um, once I started diving into what the K-pop collective is, I was blown away and I was like, I have to interview y'all. So um, without further ado, uh, I would like to introduce Dr. Crystal Anderson and Dr. Katrina Davis Kendrick. Hello. How are y'all? Good. How are you? Good, good, good. Um, and before we get into it, uh, I guess give a brief intro of who you guys are. Oh, I'm going first. Okay. Um, okay. I am Dr. Crystal Anderson. Uh, I am an affiliate faculty member in Korean studies in modern and classical languages at George Mason University and the director and co-founder of KPK K-Pop Collective, which is the oldest and we think still the only ACA fan site for K-pop music and its surrounding culture. Hi, I'm Professor Katrina Davis Kendrick. I am um, Dean, new a new Dean at an um, institution in the, in the Southeast in South Carolina at Winthrop University. And um, I'm senior, I have a long title, Senior Fellow for Information Management. Um, at the K-pop collective. And I've been working with Dr. Anderson since about 2011. So I actually, I remember reading through y'all's bios and uh, Professor Katrina, Katrina, you you said like, I know how to find things. Like, I, like it was like, in short, I know how to find things. <laughs> yes, so, that's exactly what I can do. I love that. So, I, I mean, one of the things, you know, like you said, uh, like y'all said, um, you guys are the oldest and as far as we know, only ACA fan site for modern Korean popular music and its surrounding um assets, I guess. Um, but one of the things I found through uh, this, and I'd never heard of it because I'm not really well-versed in academia, but um, it's that, we'll short it from K-pop Collective to KPK, but um, you guys are a community of practice. Um, can you explain what that is and how it relates to the K-pop Collective? Yeah, so a community of practice is an informal group that gathers around a topic that they find interesting and want to, they have a problem Mm -hmm. that they want to solve within that group. And it could be formal or informal, but we gather together in order to find solutions to the problem. And the great thing about that is, for instance, with K-Pop Collective, um, I came in because I was interested in Korean popular culture and Dr. Anderson's concern about gathering information. That's in my wheelhouse. But what's really great about a community of practice is that a lot of the things I've learned at the K-pop collective in terms of how we've been doing that work, I've taken that back to my work in libraries where I've been working. And so that's what a community of practice is really. It's informal or formal group, usually informal, of people who might be experts and who might not be experts, but they come together to solve a problem around a common interest. Okay, so what is the common problem that you guys, you feel like you were trying to solve or at least just tackle? Well, the initial problem was that there was no central place for new K-pop fans to find accurate information um, about their favorite artists. And then to put that information within a larger context of Korean popular music. So, you know, if you're a new K-pop fan, one of the first things you want to know is who is who. I don't know who's who, you know, where does that song come from? Is there an album? Was there a video? And so initially, we were um, really concerned with finding um, accurate information 
information that had been cross-referenced so that it could be as accurate as we could get it. Um, and then putting those things into context in terms of profile. So for instance, if you take, you know, a group like, I don't know, Shinwa, and look at their first music video and then look at their latest music video and then look at the music videos in between, you, got, you start to see a development of that group. And you can only do that when you put all of those things together in one place. Um, and that helps us to start the foundation of creating um, a context and a history for K-pop music. Have, basically, it's a, it's a database for people to go back and refer to, you know, if you you just became a K-pop fan in 2018, if you want to know who SS501 is, like, you can go back and figure out, you know, I know that's your ultimate bias group, Dr. Anderson, um, yeah. but um, it's one of the things that I found while, you know, going through the K-pop collective website was that there are multiple sort of databases that you guys kind of have available, it seems. <laughs> so there's like, there's K-pop. Piana, if yes. I'm pronouncing that right. Uh huh. Yes. There's K-pop Piana. Let me. Um, K-pop Commons, which you guys started this year. Yes. Uh, oh, and and do how you as well. Um, yes, which is and that. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. In, yeah, in yeah. The, so this is one of the great things about research is that it changes. So, like I said initially, we were all about the information um, and providing that as a resource. Um, and then building these collections initially on WordPress, which is a blogging platform, and then later on Omeka, which is a different kind of um, content management platform. What ended up happening, though, is that we started to see patterns and we started to ask questions about the things that we found. So why is it that this group, or how is it that this group is related to this group? What is you know, the SM performance sound. And how can you tell it when you see it um, or when you hear it? Um, and so the information is just the starting point for scholarly writing about K-pop. And so what you'll find on, um, still on the WordPress platform is not only the beginnings of those initial databases, but also then writing, scholarly writing that ask serious questions about K-pop, K-pop music, how it's represented, how it's talked about. Um, and because we have this wealth of information that we've been collecting in various kinds of ways, um, we have a greater pool of knowledge to pull from to be able to put um, K-pop in a context and talk about it um, over the long term as opposed to just a trendy um, thing coming out of Korea. Yeah, and I'd like to uh, add to that here is another important point is in terms of the creativity and how it's moved forward through time is we have to remember that K-pop lives, how you lives on the internet. It lives on the internet and there's a visual component to it. And that's one of the primary or central features of these content management sources that you see is that you get to see and interact with the content in real time. So it's not just about, uh, yeah, we have photos of perhaps your, your ultimate biases but you get to see how that develops and how people interact with those things visually and what those visual connotations mean as they move forward. And you can really see the globalization of the music through these visuals as we present them to you in real time. And it's interesting, you guys have been doing this since 2010. This is your 10th or anniversary. We're as old as shiny. We're just as old as shiny. <laughs> who's, wait, whose bias is Onu? I'm forgetting. 
Oh, well, oh, yeah, that's me. Well, <laughs> Trina I'm on the edge. I often fight between <laughs> on you and Tamey. I love that. I love that. Poor Minho. Um, <laughs> I think he's so cute. Um, but um, so I guess since 2010 and like you guys, you know, like starting from second generation now spanning into this fourth generation of groups that are coming out now, what new... Uh, avenues like do you find or what new avenues avenues of research have presented themselves to y'all since then that you think would be now cool to explore um, that might have differed from what you were doing back then I think that um, the the increased visibility of k-pop means that you now have more uh, ways to explore it so one of the places that you can um, find a lot of uh, that wasn't there in 2010, but maybe mm. are here now, um, is the proliferation of um, K-pop fans on social media. Um, when we first started, you know, a couple of people would get together and they might have a Twitter account. But one of the things that we find now is that we have these massive, um, unofficial and yet very influential um, groups of fans around the world who come together through social media because K-pop lives on the internet. Um, and then using um, the social media platforms that were available when we first started, but now we have things like TikTok, we have Snapchat, we have Instagram, we have, um, even YouTube has changed in the way that fans use it and deploy it mm. to share um, their love of K-pop. You have a proliferation of people who, fans who start K-pop channels, reaction videos, um, alongside um, cover dance and cover song. And so as the technology changes, K-pop fans find new ways to use it. Um, mm. On the, uh, on the scholarship side, you're starting to see a lot of scholarship um, out of quantitative, using quantitative methods. So using data science to look at social media in terms of the numbers, in terms of networks, in terms of who's talking to who or what mm-hmm. hashtags get used, um, by whom, where, when, how often. Um, and then you also have people who are trying to come up with metrics to measure popularity if you can do that um but i also think that you know even though k-pop has changed those very fundamental um research methods there are still things that we don't know um i think Mm. that we are not doing enough to articulate um the youngest end of um the k-pop uh, age spectrum, even hmm. though they are most often maligned in the press. So young women who are into you know, who are into K-pop, you know, rarely get any of the credit for the kind of um, informal archiving that they do. I mean, mm-hmm. we have to thank the twelve-year-olds for keeping those um, informal databases alive with all of that information. At the same time. If you go to the other end of the age spectrum, they always Mm. seem to get left out. Um, And it's really important because if K-pop is, you know, more than 20 years old and you were a teenager when you got into K-pop, that means you're an adult K-pop fan now. And so one of the things I think that um, we and, and, and a lot of disciplines struggle with this is to represent the diversity of the fandom and not let it fall into a monolith about who's a K-pop fan and what that might mean. 
Interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> On my side, <clears throat> at the when I first came in, first off, um, I, I need to say that when I started with the K-pop collective, I was a new K-pop fan. Mm. I had just found out about Shiny because I was on the Rain track uh, with Rain and I had moved on to Shiny. So I was just getting into Shiny. So all the things that I was working on were helping me. Um, but one of the things that I found is um, that I'm really interested in is all these intersections. When people think about what K-pop music sounds like, you only hear that one, you know, <laughs> you know, the maybe a lot of, uh, um, uh, what is it called? Um, dubstep or something like that, right? But what Crystal and I know is that a lot of this sound comes, is, is um, representative of a sound that we grew up listening to. So R&B, 1990s R&B, those sounds are what keeps the kind of classic feel of K-pop moving forward. Mm. And so one of the things I've been looking at, if you go into the K-pop collective site is, let me introduce you to, let us introduce you to. You too. Mm -hmm. And so we get these really, the cool thing about K-pop and why it sounds so great to Americans, even if they might not know the history of the music, is that it sounds familiar to them. And the reason it sounds familiar to them is because you know, the other end of the spectrum, which is the older K-pop fan who doesn't look like perhaps a K-pop fan is supposed to look, which is usually a person not of color um, in the United States anyway. Um, we can now go back and say, you know why that sounds familiar? Because here, this is where that sound comes from. And so now uh, Crystal and I are able to make these links now more salient because more people are coming towards this music. And what's being more, made more apparent on the internet is who is producing these sounds for these Korean production companies. So people like Curtis Richardson, things like that. Um, they're active in talking about who they're working with and the artists that they're working with. And so they have those connections to those sounds that Crystal and I have been looking at as well, which is basically American R&B, what we now know is what we consider is American R&B, American soul music. Hmm. That's so, so actually I was like, I guess getting into SM and like Shiny specifically, and I looked at the, let me introduce you to Shiny. I feel like is like recurring, like always bringing back, like, like I think with good evening, it was like one, one, what is it? One, one, twelve. one, twelve. Yeah. One twelve. That I was mm -hmm. like, where have I heard this from? And then I was watching a reaction video and they're like, Oh, this is, from, and then you, there was another one for like, um, lock you down. Like there's just mm -hmm. a number of different references right. to like 90s stuff. And, um, right. The reason I found you guys was through um, I, I was on a phone call and I was trying to look for um, where Isuman referenced that K-pop was built on black music. And mm -hmm. I found that's how I came across this website. And um, mm -hmm. I guess do you I, I don't know if feeling is like not academic, I guess. But like, do you it, out of all of the labels that, you know, you've been able to study? SM seems to be the one that consistently is like or they I mean they outright said it, but like why do you feel like SM is always the one that is like literally in whatever way, shape or form taking or like referencing older sounds in black music? I know um, Krista has been writing about this and she can speak a little bit more to it. But for me, you do, you do mention Shiny. And I think in particular, the way that Korean music is created is specifically designed to, to be timeless in this way. So they take a little bit of something familiar and they rework it. That is the sound, particularly that is the SM Entertainment way. They take something and they rework it. And, and, and I think their reason that they're successful at it is because they know where it comes from. And because they go back to those communities and say, let's work. They don't work outside of the community. They go to the communities of artists who know these sounds and they then make them more modern. 
Um, and they do that consistently. And Shiny is a particularly representative group. It, and it's not just because of they are my bias, but they are truly particularly representative of this method from talking about New Jack Swing from one of one. Um, their early work references, like people, they went to, um, Crystal, what's the name of the group um, that they use for, in, a, in their first album, they were using old school R&B literal tracks from um, the, the Force MDs, the Force MDs. So they started with the Force MDs from their first album and they moved forward from there. So they are particularly using that. And I think the cement way in particular is to understand. And Lee Suman is in the United States too. So let's not forget he's he's living in um, LA or he goes back and forth to LA and things like that too. So I'm Crystal can probably talk more about that, but I think Smith in particular and JYP too. Um, JYP too. So I know, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean JYP kind of references um, Sean Puffy Combs, right? If you want to, you know, if you need a reference, even though I, I don't, I take, I sort of try not to compare. Well, he's the so and so, so and so. But when you think about those ideas um, and how they manifest, they seem, they have a similar feel. Yeah, I would just add that, and people have said in passing that um, K-pop and particularly the operation at SM um, bears a resemblance to um, Motown and the operation mm -hmm. under Barry Gordy. Um, I think there are a lot more similarities between the two. And I think one of the reasons why, um, even though you find um, other agencies and other groups that are um, uh, drawing on the Black um, popular music tradition, what makes SM different, I think is because, um, and I talk about this in my book, um, is that Lee Suman's project is very similar to Barry Gordy's project. And that project mm -hmm. isn't just to make a quality music product, which is part of the project. But the other part of the project is this global spread that then in turn, um, changes what may be negative perceptions of um, maybe negative perceptions of Korean culture and Korean people on a global scale. So not just within a country, but in a global scale. Um, and so those mechanisms reaching outside of the country to work with um, talent that's not Korean. Um, if you listen to, you know, the SM artists, it is so, there's like, it's not the same, but you can tell that there is a consistency there. Um, and, and when you look at um, who's working on these tracks, um, and sometimes you can get them to talk about it, even, um, it's not a secret. Um, nobody's, you know, this is not an Area 51 kind of situation. <laughs> it's really not a secret. Um, and it's also kind of part of the way that Black popular music has worked even in the United States, this kind of collaboration. And we know that there's been exploitation, but there has also been collaboration that makes Black popular music the hybrid music that's been able to travel around the globe. Um, mm. and inspire people globally. You have to remember that um, for SM Entertainment, it's not just a music production company, it's a talent production company. They produce talent first and the music is kind of the, 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 the product of the talent that they bring, um, that they develop. Right. Um, so because they see themselves as the face of Korea, like people in Korea who I've talked to when they talk about music, one day I was talking with someone in Korea and she, and she was like, yeah, they're the face of Korea. They are Korea in terms of music, hmm. but as an entertainment. And you see they are, um, just until recently, they were 
they stay and the AV still now, you know, they're on the tourism, they have tourism um, there and they're the face of Korea. Um, and so keeping that keeping that in mind that they produce talent and the talent just happens to be the output of the music. Right. And it's interesting when you were talking about the similarities between Motown and SM or I guess K-pop as a whole, but one of the other things um, was how they're their almost etiquette school that they have it's it's very similar as well um which let's talk about soul in soul um which is supposed to be coming out this september right yes okay oh i was like wanting to pre- you can pre-order it right now right you can't or- okay okay cool so basically this is uh for fans you know it talks about a range of you know artists that you like already know about if you're a k-pop fan um or korean popular music fan um but um, one thing you mentioned for scholars was that there's in, it's examining the intertextuality. Um, what does that mean if, for people who might not understand what that means? Right. Including myself. <laughs> sure. So intertextuality, um, when you're talking about literature, if you're reading a novel and you run across a reference or a style or an allusion to something else, another genre, another artist, that's called intertextuality when authors draw from. And it's obvious because they want you to get the reference. The idea is that you go back to the source material or if you if you don't know it, you go to the source material. If you do know it, then you get that sense of, oh, I know where that is, that comes Mm. from. That's how it works in literature. In music, it works in a similar kind of way. Although it sounds like, you know, that you're mixing metaphors, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, when you hear something, music has meaning in and of itself. And I think mm-hmm. that one of the things that we assume about K-pop, but we never really say, is that the music transcends the language. So K-pop fans get criticized for, how can you listen to that? You don't even understand what they're saying. I'm like, is that really true? Because the music has a language and a meaning all its own. When you hear a certain kind of chord progression or a beat, you're like, oh, I know what this is about. I don't even have to look up the lyrics for this. Mm. Because music has an emotional meaning attached to it that people recognize if you know where it comes from and where that context is. And so my argument, one of my arguments in Soul and Soul is to actually trace not just the influence of 1990s R&B on K-pop, but other genres, including funk, jazz, whatever black popular music genre there is out there, chances are K-pop has drawn from it. And the further Mm. back you go with those genres, that makes, I think, our um, perception of K-pop richer because it's easy to go listen to some new edition and then slap that beat into a track and call it a day. But it's much harder when you're sampling oh, I don't know, Bill Withers, um, Mm. that takes a little bit more effort and a little bit more intentionality. And we see that over and over and over again, not just with the idols, but also also with Korean R&B and Korean hip hop, mainstream hip hop as well. Hmm, that's interesting. And it's not just the music, it's actual concepts. So Taman is coming out with his album Tomorrow, well, today, tomorrow, today, tomorrow. <laughs> That's the cool thing about being in the United States. I get to have like two days of album dropping. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, Taman's new album is called Never Gonna Dance Again. Mm. That's a direct reference to Wham, George Michael, Andrew Ridgely in the 1980s, okay? So this is what we have to know when we talk about knowing your history and that hmm. idea of where things are coming from. Now, the name of the, 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 the title track is Two Kids, but the name of the album is a direct reference 
to a legendary singer group from who 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 made the who was part of the main sound for the 1980s pop hmm. movement. So we have to understand really with these larger aspects. And then George Michael also, when you think about George Michael, he was known as a what? A R&B singer hmm. before he passed away. Right. So his vocal skills, um, even though he was doing pop, are actually R&B vocal skills. So th- this is like, you know, a vortex. Mm. Right. <laughs> That's so interesting. Stacks on stacks. I really love like when I was looking through uh, like as a newer K-pop fan. I loved the. Fa- I feel like I like I've maxed out on like trying to learn as much. I don't know the intermediate basics of like each group that's you know third generation, fourth generation on. But I really love that I can go back and like seriously learn about like in black or like um, you know like who am I? Who else am I forgetting? Like you were talking about um. The Nest, oh, I think it was like during one of the, the seminars that you guys were, or the conferences was the K-pop con at UC Berkeley. And you guys were talking, or um, uh, Dr. Anderson, you were talking about how, um, you know, usually people are fans of SNSD, you know, uh, 21, Super Junior, but it's necessary to look at, or, you know, TVXQ, it's necessary to look at the groups that like maybe aren't the most popular, like that are going to have casual fans to really see what a K-pop fan does because they are, you know, there for that. So I really like, I, I'm really excited to be able to go through that entire database and learn more um, about those second gen, first gen, you know, 90s, you know, groups and and acts as well. And I'm I'm wondering, Professor Katrina, um, when you're as as time goes on, and there's things like Amino, you know, there's TikTok and Reddit, how are you, how do, are you data mining all of this? And, or like, you know, or not data mining, maybe that's not the right word, but like. No data mining. It is, okay, data mining. How are you making sure to like bring all of this like together, like in a, you know, uh, I guess, curt but cohesive way maybe? So metadata helps us. So metadata is data about data. And oh. so everybody plays a role in this, right? So we talk about, remember, K-pop lives on the internet. And in order for people to find things, we have to use the language that they're using. So that's what we do. And we do it through what's called a metadata schema. So when we created K-pop um, Omeka, when we started working in Omeka, we created a tag list. So mm. we have certain things that we make sure we put into that data about the data, right? So people can find things that they need it. And as we move forward, these, these schema are not their working schema. So we might figure out, oh, we need to add another set of schema, another set of data about data. So that's one way. And also we need help. To be honest with you, it's a lot of data. And so one of the other things about communities of practice is we're constantly seeking people to help us mine this data because you know how many idols come out in one year? Right. Not to mention just the numerous, um, the the methodology that our idols use to promote their music. Mm -hmm. They don't just promote in Korea. They got the Chinese version and the the Chinese album, the original Japanese album, plus the, chi- the, the Japanese um, repackage of the Korean album. Mm. So they're very prolific in how they market to their primary constituency. And that is something that we don't often, we also think about in K-pop collective. Korean music at the end of the day is created for Korean people, mm. okay? And so we have to remember that what we hope that our idols will do is um, sort of secondary, at least till Super M and BTS, mm. right? We are just coming to the point where they're consistently thinking about, you know, the Western market, right? They 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 finally figured. They I think they figured out a way how to open up to the, get the Western market to open up to them, mm. and that's great. 
But um, in terms of information gathering, we need help. I can't do it by myself, but generally we start with metadata and we move forward from there. So searching, using those tags, when we find things and create projects, we have that schema to, to um, add those tags to those items that we gather. Um, and that's how we start and we need help. Wow. So if anybody wants to look at K-pop stuff all day, which is awesome, um, come join the K-pop collective. So speaking of that, how can people, and would you, would they call themselves a KPK fellow or is that something completely different? Um, it depends. Uh, we actually um, have talked about um, updating our intake um, of KPK participants. Um, one of the things that we do is we say literally anybody can do this. We train, and that's one of the benefits of not only being scholars, but also being educators. We train people how to be critical and not critical in a negative, gonna tear you down kind of way, but tr a critical in a kind of way that explores what does this mean for the larger body of knowledge. We train people how to do that. We also train people on the tools that we use. And um, back in the heyday, when we had interns and fellows and all kinds of people, um, we actually trained a 16 year old in California that we never met to work in Omeka, which is no small feat because that's a pretty complex learning curve for Omeka. Um, and so we don't say, oh, you can't do this. We can, if you have the desire to want to actually do something constructive with K-pop, we can train you how to do that. And then we've had um, students who have been interns, fellows, whatever we call them by the time they left, um, mm -hmm. leave with skills <laughs> Um, that help them in their practical lives and them pursuing what they want to do. We've had um, our former students go to grad school in foreign countries. And um, so it's really beneficial in a way that I think people don't really recognize. Like I said, it's really interesting being um, the only ACA fan site out there because we have different kinds of concerns. We're not concerned with funding, although it would be nice if somebody dropped some cash on us. Um, we are not concerned with advertising, with promotion, with profiting in that kind of way because we're a scholarly outfit. So we have different kinds of concerns um, and we have different kinds of needs. But if people have the passion and they, um, you know, I feel like Yoda, you're going to commit. Uh, <laughs> then we are always happy to have um, people. They can always um, send, a, send an inquiry to us. Our contact information is on the webpage and we would like to be able to get to the point where we're actively training people um, to do the work once again. I will be contacting you after this interview. <laughs> I'll be contacting y'all. I get to look at Taman all day and call it research because it is, I mean, it is, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. really can't, I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, let me listen to this track yeah. again to get some analysis. analysis. <laughs> I'm analyzing for research, right? Research right. <laughs> for research. Research. Yes. But the cool thing is, it actually is. It just happens to be the thing that we really, really enjoy. That gives me great, great pleasure. That's awesome. And I, I wonder, um, for you, P Professor Katrina, what? Mm -hmm is like a goal of yours that you would like to be able to get to with the K-pop collective? I want Lisa Man to call us and invite us over, preferably with Chinese. <laughs> so 
so I can just, you know, check my facts. Right. <laughs> I just want to check. Check my facts. That's hilarious. I know they're right, but, you know, just as a, you know, formal, is this correct? Also, hi. 2021, they'll be, or I guess, end of this year, they'll be out of the military and like. I, yeah. I mean, so, you know, that's a, that's actually a real thing. And the other equally important goal that I hope to um, have is that people understand um, the context of what Korean popular culture is and get a better understanding of what it it, it, it is not and what most people understand of Korean popular culture is very, very shallow, particularly in the West. Hmm. And so my goal is that they have a deeper understanding, just as we have a deeper understanding of now hip hop, just as we have a deeper understanding of now jazz, just as we have a deeper understanding now, say, of bluegrass music. Hmm. All those things at one point were seen as not things that we were interested in. Why would you look at those things? But the fact of the matter is Korea is it, a tiny, it's a little peninsula in Asia and people know who that is, where that is now. And so they have a global impact. Not only that little tiny peninsula has an impact in Asia hmm. and now it has an impact in the United States. It has an impact and we've seen it grow. Crystal and I have literally been watching this grow. Hmm. There was a time when no one was thinking about anybody coming to Chile Super Junior was in Chile, mm -hmm. okay? So we have seen it grow in places that we never perceived that they, it would be in 2011. And look where, they, look where we have BTS just casually on the Grammys now in the United States. And, that thing, and that's regular to a lot of K-pop fans. Mm -hmm. But when we, Crystal and I were starting, that would have not happening. No. And we would not have conceived it. Mm -hmm. So that's my ultimate goal, for people to have a deeper understanding of the impact of Korea hmm. and its people. And, and it's not, for me, it's not just about the music. I'm very deeply um, intrigued and interested in the culture and language as well. Are you, are you uh, fluent or uh, do you speak Korean? No, <laughs> but I'm still interested. I need yeah. someone to practice with. So yeah. I'm always looking for someone to practice with. I'm in the South, so I can't find any, but I watch television, I watch the shows, I eat the food um, and I don't wait till I'm at a concert. So, um, and I have friends who are living in Korea who I talk with as well. So, mm -hmm. and I've been to Korea three times as a, as a result of my interest, my initial interest in K-pop, I've been to Korea three times. So um, this is a part of my life, mm -hmm. not just because of the music, but because I'm interested in the people and the culture. Right. I know you went once to study uh, the way the Korean library system works essentially. Right, okay. right, I did. And then, but the first time I went out just went because I just wanted to go. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, oh, this is something that's a part of that I can look at while I'm next time. So I'm a library per person. I love visiting libraries. And my first time to Korea, I went to a library. Mm -hmm. And then I decided to go back and study my talk with my colleagues in the library. And so that was a great opportunity to be able to learn even more about Korea. And, you know, Crystal, when I think at that time, we were watching Tree with Deep Roots. Oh my gosh, yeah. So for me, yeah. So for me, it's like literally, you know, Hangul was created in the library. So, you know, for me, it was like Hangul. And, and you know, they have they have, a, they have a museum about the language right under um, King Sejon in Gwanghwamun mm. Square. So I went there. So for me, it, like I said, for me, it really is a culmination for me of not only something that I enjoy, quote unquote, casually, it's really been a part of my professional life and um, a huge part of um, my burgeoning identity as a part of my whole myself. It's something I enjoy that's part of me. I love that. I love that. I seriously think 
it will happen one day. Lisa Mon will be called. I'm not even kidding. Because who's like, there's no one else doing something like this, you know, out there, you know? I'm rubbing my hands. I love that. Um, and Dr. Anderson, what is a goal of yours? And also talk a little bit about what we or you know, uh, how we people can find your book as well. Um, I think my goal has always been with KPK to for people to have serious conversations. And by serious, I don't mean boring. People have conversations about K-pop all the time, um, about their biases and you know what album is the best and you know what you know song is you know the, the 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 their most favorite. So fans have these conversations all the time. But as Trina said, when we started back in 2010, nobody thought that K-pop was important um, because it was just trendy. Um, and I think that for me. Um, I find the value of K-pop is in the inspiration that it gives to the people who listen to it. But in order to get to that, we've got to talk about the music and not just talk about the music in terms of it being manufactured because that's a done to death and quite frankly, oversimplification of what K-pop is. Um, but to talk about who's making the music, what that sounds like, um, I tell people that K-pop is like, it's, it's infinite because even if you stop today with the people who have released things, there's so much K-pop that never gets talked about. So many artists that are really interesting and fascinating. And remember, Korea is so small. So these people are actually talking to each other, working with each other, even though we don't always see that. Um, it's amazing the kind of musical output um, that has happened. So the initial mission of K-pop collective was to um, act as a resource, but also to bring that conversation to a broad audience and have a place where people can talk um, about K-pop in a way that makes K-pop matter. Um, and whether that is um, the cultural value of K-pop, um, it is interesting to me that this very Korean um, piece of cultural production has so many diverse adherents to it. And what is that? You know, people would pay infinite amounts of money to figure out how to get that kind of global appeal. And yet that's what K-pop has so that I can talk to a K-pop fan in Russia and we can both squee over, you know, in TVXQ because everybody knows what that body roll is about. So it's just really fascinating to me. And I always um, wanted K-pop Collective to be a place where we um, help to nurture and cultivate that kind of discourse. It's a discourse that comes out of liking a thing and it's okay to love it. A lot of times in academia, we have to you know, take this you know, objective, we're gonna critique something, but K-pop, it really is okay to love it. And that's what I tell um, my students that work on K-pop. It's okay if you like it, it, it really is. Um, and so my goal, of course, you know, I would not hang up on Lee Suman if he called. Um, but what I would really like to see is, you know, more people working globally together 
on K-pop. I know that language is a barrier, um, but for the 10 years we've been working on KPK, I mean, you know, we look at the, the, the um, analytics for the site. We get a lot of visitors from the US. We get a lot of visitors from around the globe, but we would really love to form um, connections with uh, our colleagues in Korea uh, because they are on the ground. Um, and I think they could give us, they could give us insight into K-pop. And I think we could give them insight into K-pop because reading some of the coverage that K-pop gets in Korea, we're like, what is that? It's, it's there's a disconnect because we're not talking um, to each other. And so just as K-pop has grown um, and has this global fan base and the global fans work together, I would like to see a little bit more collaboration um, among the people who talk about K-pop. Right. I, I hope that all of this happens. And I know that you guys are short on time, but I really appreciate the time that you guys took to uh, sit and uh, educate our listeners um, about the K-pop collective. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Anderson. Thank you, Professor Katrina. And uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day as well. And thank you for joining. Okay. Thanks. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.